Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Less Panic, More Peace. Thank you all for tuning in. We have some really cool topics in store for you today to listen to. Our special guest is a medical director of pediatric pulmonary clinical immunology and allergy at Miller's Children's Hospital, which is one of the top 50 programs nationwide, and is also the CEO of SoCal Food Allergy Institute. We will speak about some hope of new advancements, advice and tips for kids and parents, interesting stories, and so much more. Without further ado, I'm excited to introduce you all to Dr. Renoa. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Rhea. Thank you for having me. I think this is an awesome opportunity, and I think I really applaud you for taking on the issue of food allergy food anaphylaxis and taking it to the tools that we do. It's really great. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. So can you tell the audience a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. Um, I'm, well, I'm a doctor. I'm a physician. I'm a scientist, and I, you know, when you're in that world, you can do a lot of different things. So I am an academic, as you know it. So, you know, I, I teach, I'm a professor and all that great stuff. I still see patients and I'm also building programs. And so I, I'm a really unusual person in that I have uh, five board certifications. Uh, most doctors generally, you know, do one or two. Um, so I guess you can label me any way you want with that. Uh, but as a lung doctor, immunology uh, specialist, I have had an opportunity to kind of see a lot of different medical conditions across lots of different people. So these are very young folks to very old folks. Um, I really see the whole age spectrum. So yeah, that's kind of my background and it's kind of given me lots of cool opportunities. That's awesome. So you basically do everything, basically, is what I'm hearing. (laughs) (laughs) I've actually read, or apparently early in your career, you had like this early experience in lung lung transplant immunology. Is that correct? That's right. That's right. So can you tell me a little bit about that? I think that's so fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so, you know, when I kind of went into medicine, I um, was not totally sure what I wanted to focus on. And I kind of liked everything. And so I, I, put, I picked a lot of broad areas. And then when I got into the world of like the intensive care unit, I saw a lot of bad things. I saw a lot of people get sick. And, you know, often when people are really, really sick and they're in bad lung failure, the only option is a transplant. So I, you know, kind of thought that was, you know, a, a really interesting place because I didn't mind being the last guy in the road. You know, like when, when, when they've tried everything else, you're it. Mm-hmm. So I became really interested in, in solid organ transplant, spent a lot of time working on that. To this day, I still manage lung transplant patients. So uh, yeah, for, for a couple of decades now, it's been uh, it's been interesting. I will say it's not, unfortunately, it's not, you know, the answer. Uh, and then really in a lot of ways, going through that, being the, the final person taught me to say, let's not wait this long. Let's not wait to the end. Let's kind of deal with problems far before that and see if we get better outcomes. So that's why it's not the answer. So what is so what is the other solution then? That's a, a great question. So when I look at medical problems, uh, a lung problem, for example, I kind of started asking myself way back then. Well, if I'm here now and this person's lung has failed, you know, what 10, 50, 100, 1,000 things happened to this person to get to this point? because it didn't happen overnight. I mean, there are rare cases where that happens, but most of the time it's a long run. So I wanted to know what that was. And so as somebody who is able to treat the whole age group of patients, 
and started backing that all the way up. So I started looking at kids, you know, five, 10 year olds who had a medical disease and said, okay, well, what's going on with them that will lead to a problem when they're 50? Then I look at people who are 90 years old and backtrack that, unpack that and be like, well, hey, what were they like when they were 40 years old and what led them to this state? So I started collecting a lot of, a lot of data, a lot of information across that. And, you know, it, it's something that I've applied to a couple different disease areas off the bat, and it's been extremely successful. And I think that's where a lot of medicine should go. That's awesome. So kind of diving right into that immunology field and everything like that about allergy patients. So what made you kind of want to do that as well as the transplants and just about the lung? Yeah, you know, honestly, I mean, I'd like to tell you, like, I have an amazing uh, personal story with few allergies. I don't. I have kids. I have three kids. I, I don't. They don't have this. Um, and And to be honest with you, when I did my training in immunology and allergy, like I was kind of like everyone else, you know, you said, Oh yeah, that's just a, it's an allergy problem. Somebody else's problem. You know, we didn't, we didn't talk about it too much. And then um, go back, you know, 15 years, I was in the ICU a lot and I would see kids, young people come in the ICU and I'd see them for all different reasons. But then, you know, I kind of saw this pattern where, you know, I'd have these very, you know, sick patients who had all kinds of conditions. And then I'd tell these kids who have like a peanut allergy or a milk allergy or something else. And, you know, some of them were extremely sick and, you know, you see that enough. And I started wondering like, man, this is really bizarre. Like, cause every other condition I treat, they know they're sick, you know, they've been sick for a while and it's kind of, you know, the state of their life and we're working in and out of trying to get them better. But here, this young person was totally fine. And, you know, they got exposed to something and 10 minutes later, now we're in the unit. And they're really, really sick. So that's kind of where it all began. And I had a lot of questions. I was like, man, this doesn't make sense. And, you know, the, the, the short story is I started looking at the data there, too, and found out that the data there didn't make any sense either. Yeah, I like how you said that. I kind of want to just point out, it's like, it's not your problem. So it's like, why would you want to want to what do you want to fix? And I feel like that's the ideology about every single person who doesn't have food allergies, because they don't know that people are suffering. And this is fatal. You know what I mean? Just to kind of be blunt, you know, people could die from food allergies. And that's why I love saying this analogy that Dr. Uh, Thomas Silvera, he is uh, somebody who lost children, because a child because of food allergies. And I, I spoke to him on my podcast and he basically uses the analogy of allergies are like an invisible disease. It's like, you don't know it's there, but it's so harmful. It's so fatal. So I think that just makes people understand it a lot more, sympathize it with a lot more, because obviously we know like cancer, like all these big diseases and just everything in general, we know that they're big. We know that this is harmful, but allergies, I feel like people don't really understand it as well. Um, But I actually want to ask you a question really quick. I'm actually really curious about. So um, ever since we kind of started using that, you know, allergy disease analogy, um, people are always searching for these treatments, right? These cures, this way, this faith, this hope of something out there as a solution, right? So I know there are a bunch of treatments out there, but I think one of the main solutions I've heard is tolerance. So you take this specific protein of a peanut, for example, and you put it inside of you over and over and over again until you're potentially cured or I don't want to say cured, but treated. So is that like, correct me if I'm wrong, is that what you are doing with your programs of immunology? Can you explain that a little bit? 
Absolutely. Um, you know, the world of food allergy, and honestly, I use the word food anaphylaxis because I think they don't respect allergy enough. Um, and, and to your point, which I totally agree with, um, I spend enough time in the ICU and to this day, I still spend time in the ICU and see young people come in in anaphylaxis. We still have young people dying from anaphylaxis on a far too regular basis. And you learn to respect it, right? You have to respect that. There's, there's nothing okay with that. So um, when, when I looked at the world of food anaphylaxis, I said, all right, you know, if we can do better, then as an intensive care person, I should try to go find a solution like that. So going back, I tried to first find a better version of an Epi, uh, you know, kind of like a better version of an EpiPen, you know, really kind of working on the on the models of that. And it seemed okay, but it taught me that you have to be really, really good about when you use it. Otherwise, you're really not going to solve the problem. So then I went back to the next step, which was, well, hey, if we're going to, for example, with a transplant, if I'm going to put a lung in somebody, we don't just do that. We have to match things up. So I looked at food and started asking a lot of questions like, what is food made up of? What proteins are there? What are those proteins made up of further? What do those sequences look like? And how do they interact with your immune system? And I found out that really nobody had asked those questions. Uh, not, not enough. For the better part of 70 years, people have tried to just give people foods. Like, hey, if you're allergic to peanuts, let's try some. And they tried it and they never could make it work. They could never make anybody tolerant where they can actually eat peanuts or, or any of the other foods. So starting with that first step, my, my goal was very clear. I said, we can't just give somebody a peanut. We need to understand every part of that peanut and every part of the immune system and how does it cross match effectively. And by doing that work, a lot of hard work 15 plus years ago, I basically was able to sequence and figure out all of those proteins in the peanut plant and the peanut species and look at 26,000 other proteins that are found in all kinds of plants and the same thing with all kinds of animal proteins and we're able to cross match that effectively. And that's how the program works, at least the work that I do. And our program is called the Tolerance Induction Program, otherwise known as TIP for short. Yeah. Wow. That's fascinating. So how long does it take you to specifically find that sequence with that? So you take the immune system of some of a person, right? And then you take that protein, you kind of have to mash that up in a way how long does it take you that must be taking a very long time well it took a long time at the beginning uh yeah. but now you know listen what's really cool is i you can call me a doctor or a scientist and now like a software developer because basically we've turned this entire thing into into ai into tech i was just about to say that you know artificial intelligence exactly so what used to take me and, and a group of people you know potentially hours is done in in a millisecond and so you know by doing it right by cross-matching things right, we're able to use this and we've deployed it across over 12,000 patients, right? So this is not a small number of patients anymore. And uh, the, the, the end point's the same, right? Like we take somebody who's allergic to peanuts and they can eat any amount of peanuts, peanut butter jelly sandwiches, Thai food, anything, it's all good. Right? And, and whether it's milk or eggs, fish or shellfish or seeds or wheat, uh, we've achieved, achieved the same success using the same approach uh, but it's a it's a complicated approach. It's not easy. Um, and you have to make sure you do it safely uh, every single time. Yeah, I mean, it's a risk every single time you give somebody that specific protein, right? Yep. Um, so that's that's super interesting to me. So everybody loves stories, right? Everyone gets super intrigued to stories instead of like spinning facts in their face. You know, I feel like people would learn better from stories. I love hearing stories. So 
tell me a story about how a person or your patient maybe kind of went from that state of mind of panic to more of a state of mind of peace because of this tip, you know, this program that you developed, this AI. Yeah. Awesome. Um, well, look, I got thousands and thousands of patients, so I'll just, you know, I'll pick one. Um, it, it, so I had this patient, uh, it's probably going back seven, eight years now, who was 16 or 17 when he started, so older. And, um, you know, peanut numbers were off the charts, over 100, right? Like you can't measure them, um, always avoided everything, et cetera. So he comes in, and the first thing I ask any patient, you know, when I interact with him, as our team does, I say, you know, A, like, why do you want to do this? You know, like, I mean, this is work. It'll take you a couple of years to get through this, but why do you want to do this? And his answer was, you know, he was really tired of not being able to go to any of his friends' uh, birthday parties or, or get-togethers, you know? And in fact, he told me that uh, when he does go, like, you know, when, as soon as they start singing happy birthday, he moves to the back of the room and, you know, he just kind of disengages. He's out. And I remember like talking to him and he got very emotional and he was very nervous and he was shaking. His hands were shaking when we were just talking. And then his, his father was in the room and he was kind of getting upset. Like, he's like, no, you need to be, you know, tough about this and, and so on. And I, I told his dad, I said, listen, and I said, you don't live with this, right? This is not your world. I mean, you are not dealing with this every single time. Food is everywhere. It's food, shelter, water, basic human needs. And anything you do socially is interacting with food. So let's work around that. So the first, you know, number of months, he was going through a lot of the treatment, you know, which is again, his cross-matching protein. So he was eating a lot of other seeds and, and, and nuts and things like that. And he got some confidence, right? And then we hit peanuts and he was, again, super nervous. Well, he eventually made it all the way through past the 30-gram Challenge, which is about 75, about a, a little bit, three fourths of a cup of peanuts. And I asked him, I was like, all right, so what, what does this mean to you now that this is all done? And, you know, the number one thing he said to me was not going back to the social gatherings. He was like, now this is, he was actually a freshman in college. And he said, the amount of time I save on any given day or any given week is life changing, right? Packing food, reading labels, announcing it to everybody planning like, you know, crazy is gone. He goes, he was a, um, uh, a field hockey player. That was his sport. Mm. And so he was on the team and like you eat with everybody else, you roll with everybody else. There's, you know, no, no restrictions. And so what it took for him to move away from fear and anxiety was clear confidence that he could eat like everyone else. And, and that was huge, you know, and I just remember him before and after and wow, what a, I mean, a day and night difference, personalities. Uh, it was amazing. Absolutely amazing. You know, th those stories always, you know, make, you know, you make your day because it's like somebody is struggling. Everyone, I feel like we don't talk about mental health issues a lot in this food allergy community. Um, we kind of mainly talk about the physical thing, you know, we, you know, these treatments and everything, they're amazing physically, but it's also mentally amazing. Like a big part of his life was surrounded with food allergies. His identity was food allergies. As you said, like, I love how you said they announce it all the time. You know, you have to just read the labels all the time. And it's like subconsciously we do it every single second of every single day, kind of just thinking about it, just like, oh, I can't eat this. Food is a big part of our lives, right? Mm -hmm. And it's just taking that mental portion and just saying, you know, that anxiety is subsided in a way, which is so totally amazing. I'm actually writing a book, a kid's book about a child with kind of a mental 
mental health issue about, you know, just like anxiety, depression, feeling left out. And she's, she's only nine years old and I'm kind of writing a kid's book on it. So other people feel empowered. Like there may be one thing that you can't do, but there are a hundred other things that you can do. So kind of taking that mental state of mind about that, like less panic and more peace, kind of the core of this podcast. So I love that story. I truly do. If I could just add to that, I mean, talk about less panic and more peace. The same thing goes to parents. You know, I mean, it, it, you know, as much as they may not show their anxiety or show their fear because they don't want their children to see that, it is there. It's it's palpable. You know, it's in it's in the rooms every time we, we meet with these families, and 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 that goes away in a in a, in a incredible way. I mean, it's really remarkable, right? You have to get them to the other side of this condition, right? The other side of this condition is is eating like as I say, like a non-allergic person, no restrictions. Eat like, you know, eat like how humans have evolved to eat over time. And if you do that, shockingly enough, the immune system likes to adapt to that evolution. And in the end, you got to win. Yes. Awesome. I just want to take a little intermission. I do this segment. It's called, it's a little game. It's called Fast Five Questions. And I'm basically going to ask you, it's kind of like 73 questions on Vogue or Ellen's burning questions. I'm not sure if you've heard of them. But it's just basically five questions. And I feel like people like these games a lot. Like the audience responded very well to them. And I do this to every single one of my guests. And I time them too. So it's a little fun, little little game we have here. So it's just five allergy questions. And you're going to answer them as fast as you can. All right. Okay. (laughs) I'm going to time you. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. Let's see. Let's get that timer on. Okay. How do you come across clearly to a waiter or waitress when having food allergies? The best thing to do for, for anybody, waiter, waitress, uh, any, anybody you're interacting with, is you tell them that you have life-threatening food allergies that are serious and that if you make a little bit of an error in what's happening with this error, with, with the order that you're giving them, that it could be a real serious problem. You have to literally ratchet up the how serious the problem is. Otherwise, you don't capture their attention. Because the biggest problem, I know this is a long answer, is that a whole bunch of people out there keep saying they have food allergies and they don't. And they really make it make it bad for the people who do. Well said. What's one word to describe allergies as a whole? Oh, one word. Um, <laughs> uh life-altering. Awesome. What's a step-by-step procedure during an allergic reaction? Oh, at, first thing first is, uh, you know, if someone's nearby, get help. Let somebody know. Because if you think you're going to be able to handle the whole thing on your own, especially as you get older, it's probably not a good idea. And so first thing first, call for help or let somebody else know that nearby that what's going on and then go ahead and deploy your effort. Okay. Awesome. And then two more questions. Three essentials parents should carry without leaving the house, allergy-related. Oh, number one, absolutely top, is epi. Number two is your second epi. And number three is uh, some kind of antihistamine all the time. Awesome. And then last one, allergy-free snacks or brands or apps that you as a doctor recommend? Oh, I mean, you know, we've been uh, a big fan of uh, Spoken. Spoken's got a great app. Uh, They do a lot of cool things. But as far as brands go, I've been really impressed by the number of brands that have come out in the last two or three years. 
it is on the map. It's really, really cool. So yeah. I think I won't pick one because I think there's there's a lot to choose from. Okay, time. You got two minutes and five seconds. That was that? great. You survived. Okay. You're actually on the top leaderboard now. You're all on the top leaderboard up there. <laughs> I feel like it's nice to do these fun games because I feel like as you know, you go older, you forget about like just simply like not work, but like play. You know what I mean? And I feel Absolutely. like people, I agree with you. yeah. But I want to move to the second portion of the conversation in the podcast. I don't want to take up too much of your time. I asked this question to Dr. Soffer, who is a Yale professor, university professor. Um, and I just really want to know your perspective on the topic as well. So I know there are a lot more people who have allergies in this generation than earlier generations. Um, you know, back then you go outside, play in mud, do you know, there's a very minimum amount of people have food allergies. Um, and allergies think that this is because of genetics or just we're no more sanitary nowadays. But what's your take on this? So, you know, as a professional, like, why do you think that allergies are getting worse over time? Uh, one word. Um, it's it's called uh, it's called basically global warming. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, yes, I don't disagree with some of the immunological aspects of you know, what's called a hygiene hypothesis, all that stuff. I, I think there's some value to that, but here's a basic point. We live in the hottest time period in, in recent, you know, Earth's history. We have the highest CO2 levels in local areas. And remember, a lot of people don't think about that, but the CO2 level in a very heavily populated area is different than in a less densely populated area. So how does carbon dioxide get, you know, reduced from the environment as we have it right now? Either it's absorbed by plants, you know, mainly pollinating plants, or by diatoms in the ocean. So we live in the highest pollen counts, like literally the highest pollen counts in human history right now. So pollen and all these different plants, these species, they directly have biosimilar match proteins to foods. So if you're allergic to walnuts, as an example, and you are around walnut trees and walnut pollen, those patients, when that stuff is blooming and you're inhaling it, you feel like you're having a reaction because one of the six proteins in walnut is biosimilar to the pollen that's in the tree. So that is a huge driver for why we're seeing not only food allergies, food anaphylaxis go up, but we're seeing other allergic diseases go up, sinus problems, asthma, skin problems, et cetera. And it's across the board. And this is not just here in the U.S. This is across the world. Wow. So wait, isn't that why our environmental allergies are a lot worse as well? You got it. That's right. Yes, yeah, global warming. It's a big global problem. I mean, I mean, it's climate change. It's it's all, I mean, it is a huge problem that is impacting a whole bunch of diseases. Wow, that's crazy. I didn't know that. I honestly thought it was just the genetics or just the um, hygiene hypothesis. That's that's well, you, a Take yeah, Rhea, Rhea, it's really interesting, right? You, you, if you believe that a medical disease is genetic, it should only shift every 25 to 30 years. Like a generation has to go by yeah. and then you see a big jump. But we're seeing bumps every 10 years or even every eight years. So something is environmental. And like I tell folks, it's not like it's not like people who have food allergies are eating those allergies, those foods, right? So you're not going to eat those things. So that's not somehow making things worse. So it's got to be something you're touching or breathing that's really triggering your system. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, so I kind of want to dive into more of like the advice and tips aspect of everything. You have a lot of information, a lot of wisdom. So my listeners um, are kids and parents with food allergies. And um, what, it, what do you think 
is useful for them to think about? Like if you're a new parent with a child who has food allergies, what do you think is one tip or advice you can, you would give them? No, you know, it's interesting. So when I um, started this program a long time ago, um, the average age of people who came into the program was much older. They were like average age was 13 and a half to 14 years of age. Now it's like all the way down to like four years of age because we're getting a lot of these very young kids who you know get their first or second reaction. They're really young when they get diagnosed. So we definitely see the, um, you know, the, the response by parents, right? It's kind of interesting, you know, food again is like this quintessential part of, of being a kid, right? Growing up, like you got to have ice cream, you got to have yes. a cookie, you got you know, and so forth. And when you take that away from people, it does something to them. And then the parents, you know, are used to socializing. They want to have get-togethers and play dates and, you know, different things, uh, sport, you know, sport teams and so forth. And now you can't do that stuff. So I'd say the first piece of advice if someone gets newly diagnosed is take a, take a step and absorb that because it is a lot. I mean, it's not easy to suddenly have to change your lifestyle. Um, so that's number one. Take a step back and absorb that. This is going to be different. But then immediately, like the second most important thing is, is really go get some proper solid testing done. So you're not eliminating every little thing from your diet, right? I mean, you should really only eliminate the at-risk foods or your anaphylactic foods. And then, you know, you can then focus from there. Um, and then the, the third most important thing is, you know, have hope because, you know, like I said, certainly our program is a great example of that. We can turn this thing off. We can put people into remission. Um, so, you know, there's, there's, I, I would say not a reason to believe that, uh, you know, you can't believe in, in the future. Yeah. Awesome. So I know a lot of parents actually have this question. I see it on like these social media groups, Facebook groups, and they just say, they're just saying like, how can I prevent allergies from occurring? Is that possible at all? You know, honestly, it's, it is difficult, uh, because if you look at, again, I'll go back to the evolution aspect, yeah. right? What was the human supposed to do? The human, only a couple of species are like this, are, are true omnivores. You're supposed to eat large amounts of different proteins on a reg, on an irregular frequent basis, right? So in other words, you're supposed to eat a little bit of everything all the time. And that's not, that doesn't mean, you know, wheat every single day. You probably should spread that out. You don't need to eat shellfish every single day, but you probably want to eat it at least every three to four weeks. So in what we've done, we, we've collected literally hundreds of trillions of data points, we can study this effect, you know, how humans maintain their degree of tolerance and safety. Uh, it really is this large, irregular, frequent exposure rate that we have to kind of pick up. So the problem is, if you're trying to prevent it, right, are you going to give like a two-month-old baby, you know, all these different foods? Well, hey, they can't digest it, not so easy. So I think it's a complicated question. You know, we know that about half the global population is not allergic, at least for now. And so you got a one out of two chance of not being that person. And then there's the other half who are kind of at risk. And then there's a portion who are clearly anaphylactic. So mm -hmm. uh, my advice to people is, look, if you have a diverse diet, keep it. Don't go on an elimination diet. Yeah. Uh, if you are at risk, go get tested before you try to really expose yourself to anything that's a safe set of Yeah. Advice. So I can kind of going back to what you said about the global warming kind of environmental and just you can't really prevent it at two years old, obviously, since they can't eat anything. Right. Um, but I feel like that's why there are a lot of people who, a few people who I know, actually their allergies pop up just when they're in their twenties. And I'm like, exactly. how is that even possible? And I guess this is scientifically proven. What you just said, yep. uh, backs up basically how 
just random out just fruits, you know, bananas. Like they had bananas all their life. And just all of a sudden, nope, they can't have bananas. Oh, and, by, uh, and you know, I would give you an example. I mean, one of the biggest studies done uh, in food allergy was uh, two years back at the University of Chicago. And they studied like 15,000 people uh, with food anaphylaxis. Two thirds of them developed food anaphylaxis after 18 years of age. So that means the majority of people who have food allergies in this country developed it in adulthood. So how did that happen? I'll tell you a quick story. You'll have this, you'll see this story, I mean, so often. You're four years old and your parent says, oh, here, here's a, you know, here's a shrimp cocktail. Eat this shrimp. And they'll say, oh, this is not good. I don't like the way this tastes. And they spit it out and they're done. Well, you just got exposed. You stimulated your immune system. And now you kind of go through the next three or four years of your life. And they say, well, he doesn't like to eat that stuff. Fine. But what about the biosimilar proteins? What about the biosimilar proteins in your environment, like dust mites? So those keep cropping in there. And now at seven years of age, he eats some shrimp. And this time his mouth gets really itchy because the system's been primed. And he says, I did not like that at all. And he says, I will not eat that again. His parents are like, you know, he just doesn't like it. It's good. So he never eats it again until he's 25 years of age at his, you know, maybe, a, you know, a job, a dinner or something of that nature. And now with all that time and all that memory built up, he eats the whole shrimp. He likes the taste of it. And bam, he goes into a massive reaction. So there's, again, a lot to this idea of large, irregular frequency-based exposures of all the different proteins. Yeah, that's very uh, fascinating because it's like you don't really understand how that works. You kind of hear these stories about, oh, yeah, I have allergies. I found out that I had allergies at an older age than usual, not when you're two or four or six. You don't really hear that often unless you get actually allergy tested. Um, but people just, you know, cause I don't think people think about it as often. And one thing I really want to point out is that what you kind of, what we've been talking about is we are not really in control, right? Like we can't really prevent it. I feel like everybody wants to be in control of their own life. Like I want to be in control. I'm very type A and I just want to be in control of every single thing that happens. Um, but I can't, you know, and I have to let that go. And I know a lot of people can relate to that. Um, especially in food allergies, like you can't be in control all the time. And I feel like parents always feel this sense of regret if their child has an allergic reaction. It's like, it's not in your control. You know, obviously to some extent it is like carry the EpiPen at all times, but I don't think avoidance, avoidance, avoidance should always be that mantra. And I think what you're doing with tip and everything and just the programs is so interesting. And it's kind of moving away, moving away from that mantra of avoidance and more of that mantra of acceptance. And I think that it's just so inspiring. So, yeah. Thank you. Now, I, I would say, I, I do think it's much easier to live a life of being in, in, in a tolerance induction program, this model. It's much easier. I mean, yes, you have to eat certain amounts of proteins. You have to eat them once a week. Um, but it's a lot easier to live like that than to read every single label and tiptoe and be super careful and be nervous. Um, and in the end, honestly, your parents are also a lot less stressed. So it's kind of yeah, that's about a win-win. That's, that's, that's not the That's true. That's true. Um, so I don't want to take up too much of your time, but to kind of wrap everything up a little bit, um, you know, kind of going back to that less panic, more peace. Um, I want to ask you one big question that's on my mind, and I'm sure a lot of other people's minds, you know, that big question, going back to the core to reduce anxiety and stress from parents and kids. Um, one of the most important things that what I and the listeners are all about are how to improve the mental mindset. We kind of talked about this before. So for you, how do you do that? 
you know what I do? Um, I've been through a whole bunch of things in life, uh, you know, with, uh, you know, disease and health and, and, you know, I, I'm a little bit different, right? I mean, I, I see it through a different lens. I, I get to see things differently. I get to see the human story in a whole different way. But what I found is if you take your condition, you have only one choice. Either you are a victim of your condition or you are a survivor of your condition. And you always hear about cancer survivors. You don't really hear about cancer victims, right? So you want to be a survivor of your condition. And what it means is talking about it. It means being an advocate like you are. It means getting to know other medical conditions. In fact, what I've built up here, uh, which is a nonprofit, which is our system, this this what we've been able to actually build up comp comprises many different diseases, what we call orphan diseases. Because if you care about one, you should care about the other, you know, and, and that's really what it comes down to, finding that common ground, the camaraderie around it. And that helps you really advocate at the best level. And that's how you advocate amongst large communities. So, like I said, be a survivor. Be a survivor of your condition. There we have it. Thank you so much for being on this podcast. I really appreciate it. You shared so much wisdom. It's going to be so beneficial for all our listeners. So thank you very much. And thank oh, you thank all. You. Yeah. And thank you all for listening to this new episode of Less Panic, More Peace. New episodes every other Saturday. Peace out.